and welcome to QPod, QIC's Investor Insights podcast series. I'm Alison Hill, State Chief Investment Officer at QIC, and each week we invite our listeners to take 10 and to get an update on economics, markets, and other topics of interest for institutional investors. This week, my regular co-host, Dr. Matthew Peter, is on a well-deserved break, but I'm very pleased to be joined by a special guest, QIC's newly joined Senior Fixed Income Strategist, Katie Hill. And before I formally introduce Katie, I must point out to our listeners, the uh, the surname is purely a coincidence, but uh, good morning, Katie. Hi, Alison. It's great to be here. So as you said, I've just started at QIC, so I'll briefly introduce myself to the listeners. So I work in the Liquid Markets Group, which manages active fixed income and cash portfolios, as well as customised overlay solutions and implementation. My background is as an economist and a strategist, so I've worked across rates, FX and equities, and more recently, I've managed fixed income portfolios. Fantastic. Well, a lot to talk about today with your experience and background, Katie, and and thanks again for joining us and another warm welcome to QIC. I thought we should start off potentially with the RBA, which you met last week, and it was actually, you know, Dr Lowe's last meeting at the helm, who's flipped off fairly quietly into the sunset, but he did hold interest rates steady at 4.1%. But what I thought was interesting was the associated commentary, which did retain that tightening bias, which perhaps may surprise some people. So I'd be interested to know, do you think we're done yet? Or perhaps is there more to come? And you know, what are the key areas do you think the RBA is going to be looking at going forward? in focusing on this decision? Yeah, so my view is that the RBA has finished its hiking cycle for now. So the RBA's focus has been on above target inflation and concerns about this really sticky services inflation. And look, that focus is going to continue in coming months, with the recent rise in oil likely to contribute further to headline inflation. But these concerns about inflation are going to be increasingly counterbalanced by concerns about the downside risk to the growth outlook. So we saw the GDP report last week, and overall, it painted a picture of a pretty soft economy. And in particular, cost of living pressures and higher interest rates are really biting into household spending. Now, my view is that the unemployment rate is likely to go higher over the next six months. So that's likely to extend this really soft patch in household spending further. So overall, balancing these considerations, still above target inflation, with a softening growth and labour market outlook, I think this leaves the RBA on hold in coming months before eventually easing next year. All right. Well, that's good news for all of us with a mortgage. Nice to have the interest rates on hold. I certainly feel the, uh, the household budget is, things are expensive. So it'd be good to see that inflation softening as well. But also during the late, Katie, we had the Bank of Canada meet and kept on hold, I think is largely expected. But I think the interesting point I kind of wanted to draw out here is we're seeing some real divergences in economies around the world, you know, some real softening in the Canadian outlook with softer labour markets, negative GDP growth, you know, potentially even looking at a technical recession in Canada. And that's also the case around the world. We've got China certainly slowing, Europe threatening to go into recession as well. But on the contrast, we've got the US being surprisingly resilient, but by and large, perhaps with the exception of China, which is a, a different area. All the rest have been applying the same medicine of this raising interest rates, a little bit of quantitative tightening of the balance sheet, but really different outcomes. Why is the medicine having different effects? Yeah, well, lots in that question. So I'll start Sorry. firstly with <laughs> <laughs> not <at> all. <laughs> yeah, I'll start firstly with Canada. And that's an interesting economy I've been watching quite closely. So their economy is really quite similar to Australia. Large mining sector, really strong population growth and really quite high household debt. And in this economic cycle, I'm seeing their economy as about three to six months ahead of the Australian economy. So they've already seen a half a percentage point rise in their unemployment rate. Now, as you said, the economy is at risk of a technical recession and their inflation has already decelerated quite a lot, albeit still a bit above target. So given that 
that economy is ahead of the Australian economy in this cycle. I'm watching closely how the Canadian Central Bank balances this conundrum I'm talking about. So slowing growth, but still too high inflation as a as a guide to how the RBA might behave in coming months. Talking about, you know, what's driving, as you mentioned, all these really divergent economic outcomes globally. Well, look, there are so many factors I could talk about here, but I'll just <laughs> contain myself to two. <laughs> so firstly, you know, the US is just increasingly looking like an outlier globally. So, you know, their economy is really looking quite solid at the moment at a time when growth in the rest of the world is slowing. And I think one of the reasons for this outperformance is just the US consumer. They've run through their excess savings buffers from the pandemic a lot faster than any other consumer in any other country in the world. Second factor also driving their spending is the fact that their mortgage rates are generally fixed for 30 years. So that means that high interest rates just aren't having the same cash drain on their household sector that higher mortgage rates are having in other countries. The second point I'll make that's really driving these diverging economic outcomes globally, and this is a much bigger picture point, is that we know that global manufacturing and global goods trade has been really weak for some time now. And it's appearing increasingly that countries that are more trade sensitive and have a heavier reliance on goods exports are suffering earlier and deeper slowdowns than other countries. And for some, you know, this slowdown is also being exacerbated now by the weakness in China. So this is, for example, why I think we're seeing some weaker data in the euro area at the moment which is really being driven by Germany, which, as we know, has quite a large industrial sector. And that sector is really struggling at the moment, given this soft external demand and obviously also some lingering energy issues. So, Katie, I mean, really interesting points there. And I think you can draw from all of that as well, that, you know, that the jobs for the reserves banks around the globe is a lot trickier than what it used to be. You know, perhaps the first little bit of the rate height cycle was relatively clear and it was just a question of how fast you wanted to get there. But now it's it's a bit more fine tuning. So I wonder, given that... We've also seen some movements in bond yields in the last week or two to surprise the market a little bit. Do you put it down to this sort of phase of the economic cycle or is there something else that you're thinking about? Yeah, look, I think, you know, what I've observed over the last couple of weeks is that the economic data is having impact on rates market during the session, but the impact is really short-lived and basically rates markets just shrug it off pretty quickly. I think in the very short term, what's more been driving particularly US rates markets, there's been a lot of supply of treasuries and also corporate debt into the market. And I think at the margin, you know, we've seen this recent spike in oil price. And I think that's also having an impact. I think though in time, looking ahead, macro fundamentals will reassert themselves. If you look at history, the peak in the US 10-year yield usually occurs alongside or just before the peak in the US Fed funds rate. So given that I and also the economics team expect the Fed is done now and won't rate rates any higher, that makes me think that the 10-year yields are also around or near their peak. You're listening to Alison Hill and QIC's Take 10 podcast where I'm discussing markets and economics with Katie Hill. Katie, just before we wrap up, I was hoping to get your view on Japanese rates. The Bank of Japan recently made some changes to its very long-held yield curve control policy settings, allowing the 10-year to rise at least in theory, up to 1%. But the loosening was also in part designed, I believe, to help to provide some support for the yen. Now, what we're seeing is, you know, continued weakness in the yen. And perhaps, you know, we certainly haven't seen that 10-year rate go up uh, close to that 1% level yet. So I'd be interested to hear your take on the success of the changes and any insights on where you think the policy settings might need to go from here. Yeah, you know, Once again, Japan is such an interesting economy at the moment. You know, it's seeing really quite solid growth. I think that's partly because they're not experiencing the same headwinds from tighter monetary policy that the rest of the world is seeing. 
There's also some positive signs there on inflation. We're seeing some underlying inflationary pressures building there, and we're getting some really positive uh, developments in wages there. But despite all this good news, our economics team still does not expect the Bank of Japan to change policy anytime soon, and they're not expecting yield curve control to be removed until Q2 2024, and then they're expected to keep uh, policy rates unchanged until 2025. I think, as you rightly point out, you know, the latest adjustments to yield curve control seem to be pretty successful. We're seeing the Japanese 10-year bond trade around 60 to 70 bips at the moment, so well within that 1% limit. The biggest problem for Japan right now is just that weakness in the currency. And, you know, there are many factors that are driving currency markets at any one time. But I think one of the key reasons for that structural weakness in the yen is just that large rates differential between Japan and the rest of the world. So we saw the yen uh, weaken to a 10-month low against the dollar last week. And really what was new was that a Japanese official actually came out to warn that they would take action on the currency if these sharp moves continue. So looking ahead, it wouldn't surprise me at all that should there be further significant downward pressure on the currency, then we'd likely get some intervention from the government to support the yen. Very interesting. Thanks, Katie. Well, thank you very much for joining us today. And thanks also to our listeners for taking 10. 